the future is going to be about technology with humanity. And it's how we address that humanity that I think is really important and that we're seeing really affect the mindset today. Hello, and welcome to a special edition of Retails from the Frontline. I'm Mary Gay McKee, co-founder of Fernbrook Capital and longtime retailer. And today I am joined by three very amazing guests. We have Niall Murphy, the CEO and co-founder of Everything, live from Geneva. We have Deidre Quinn, who is co-founder and CEO of iconic American ready-to-wear brand Lafayette 148, live from the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And we have Jeffrey Rayport, Senior Lecturer of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School, who's fortunate enough to be on the island of Nantucket. We're having a very timely conversation today, and there has been much discussion about the reopening of retail and stores. And everybody wants to know, what is this new retail reality and what is it going to look like? So today we're going to talk about the impact of the pandemic, what this is going to do to the consumer mindset and consumer behavior, the supply chain, and what brands and retailers really need to do now to prepare for the future and the retail of tomorrow. So I got the first question, which is a question I'm going to address to all three speakers today, which is what has the pandemic taught us about visibility specifically into the supply chain? And what has it taught us about taking control of our brand, your brand? Niall, can you take us through the, uh, the first question? Well, obviously, this has been a crisis. that is the ultimate test of, uh, of resilience, really, in the supply chain. Whole systems have stopped or key parts of it have, have failed. And uh, businesses are discovering that they've got dependencies they didn't really realize that they had. I was talking to a chief supply chain officer of a, a major CPG. They'd nearshored their production and were feeling good. Uh, and then they discovered that they had a set of raw materials and components dependencies that, that meant that their uh, nearshored production was shut down anyway. Um, you know, transportation hubs have been affected and will continue to be affected for quite uh, some time. A lot of disruption over the, over, the, over the long term. For example, World Economic Forum is estimating that we're short about 1,300 cargo-only uh, air flights a day um, for the next uh, two quarters in, uh, in, in global transport. And obviously, we've got inventory scattered right across the supply chain that, that uh, is obviously going to be a hindrance to, to restarting. So we've got a, a problem of dysfunction in the system, and those organizations that have that've got visibility to where those problems are uh, and uh, and therefore have the ability to react to them quickly are the ones that are going to be able to uh, uh, survive it or at least navigate it. Yeah, that's going to definitely be uh, a navigation issue. Um, Deirdre, um, over to you. Um, what are your thoughts on this? You know, Lafayette is in a unique situation because we're vertical. So our factory's in China, and in January, we saw this tidal wave coming at us. Um, you know, the factory shut down. They didn't reopen. Uh, the store shut down. And um, they're up and running now, but then Italy shut down. So um, we have fabrics to keep the factory going, but, you know, if Italy doesn't get up soon, we'll have a different problem. In reverse, after the U.S. shut down and all the orders got canceled, now the factory doesn't have the work that it needs. Um, luckily, we found some local manufacturing that we could, you know, use to hold us over. But um, it's, it's been an unbelievably complicated situation. So the, you know, the beauty of being vertical also became uh, the problem or the challenge. Um, but I, I believe that, you know, we're committed to our factory and we're committed to the competitive advantage that we have in being vertical. 
No, that's great. And I guess that for you specifically, having the example of China and, you know, as, as a historical example, and then being able to have the benefit of the Chinese retail up and running as you dealt with the, with the U.S., I think has definitely been, you know, has been a benefit and uh, it's been great. We definitely see, you know, the stores in China are back up and running. So that gives us the hope that, that you know, it'll happen here as well. Um, you know, we survived the quotas. Now we're going to survive this. So there, there's just a lot of challenges in, in, in everything. So, Jeffrey, um, over to you. Uh, what, what do you see as, uh, as some of these challenges and as some of these issues that have risen as, as a result of the pandemic? Well, maybe a couple points uh, building on uh, Niall and, and Deirdre's observations. One is that I work with a, a large number of direct-to-consumer e-commerce companies. And as you know, in many of the categories of DTC e-commerce, demand is up during the COVID lockdown, not down. And in some cases, up you know, hundreds of percent vis-a-vis what they were projecting in terms of volume. So it is a very, it's a fascinating time in that it's kind of the, the best of times and worst of times. Nobody on one hand wants to capitalize on a crisis like this or be seen to exploit it at the same time. If you're selling something like essential goods, it's thrilling to be able to be more mission-driven. Interesting phenomenon when looking at the big global sophisticated logistics players of which Amazon is you know, the paradigmatic example. They have evolved systems that have increasingly used data analytics and ultimately AI to take humans out of a bunch of traditional jobs within retail, like what merchants do, buying, selling of goods, making judgments about how much in the way of inventory positions to build. And of course, those systems are effective because they're running on algorithmic intelligence, usually learning algorithms using machine learning that has allowed multiple years of experience to inform the decisions they make. When we go through a discontinuity of this kind, of course, all of that uh, learning that the machines have done uh, is largely invalidated. And so I think we're in a situation where it's not just a crisis for global integration or global supply chains, but it's that the intelligence that's built into those systems may now not be prepared on an algorithmic level for the world that we're living through. And that's a really interesting kind of challenge. I think so too. And I think it's very much because the future is going to be about technology with humanity. And it's how we address that humanity that I think is really important and that we're seeing really, you know, affect the mindset today. And uh, I think, you know, retail with a heart, which I'm sure um, we can talk about a little bit more in a minute, and this technology with humanity is going to present a very interesting challenge. I totally agree. Um, Niall, we've spoken a lot about visibility into the supply chain and how it's now more important than ever. What are some of the specific challenges for companies who do not have visibility into their supply chain right now? And what do they need to do much better to prepare and manage costs at a time when it really matters the most? Niall? So the, the traditional focus on supply chain uh, competitiveness has been about cost optimization. Um, but the imperative has now shifted completely. We're in an environment of what I might call risk competitiveness, <laughs> where the rebound is, is going to be different for, uh, for different industries. Uh, we hear talk of V-shaped uh, recoveries or L-shaped recoveries. Um, uh, depending on whether the problem is demand side or supply side, I might contend we're going to see a series of these actually over 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 the over the next uh, you know, year uh, to two years. Um, and so, 
the the issue is really about having agility to navigate uh, that that problem set. Um, as as Jeffrey said, many of the existing uh, models are, are absolutely optimized to a particular flow and a particular pattern of, of activity. And, uh, and we're in a, a different environment where, where demand is coming from and where supply uh, is able to come from are going to vary significantly as we see different geographies go up and down. So um, it's about uh, brands putting the tools in place that allow them to, to, to uh, play with that flow of goods and channels dynamically, uh, gathering data from their suppliers, from their uh, distributors, uh, and building an end-to-end view. Uh, the digitization of their product items can help uh, in doing that, uh, particularly in gathering data from the end uh, consumer. Um, and the, the various blind spots that exist in the distribution uh, channel. And then uh, identifying dependencies, what, what supply components from exactly where uh, are actually underpinning uh, key, key points in the, uh, in, in the production process. It often turns out that it's the little flywheel on the, on the $100 million machine that, uh, that, that breaks the back of the camel, to use a mixed set of metaphors there. So then uh, putting all that data, data together and being able to build some predictive models or at least antip- anticipative models. So that, that's, the effort now is assemble as much intelligence as we possibly can and, and, and uh, use that to realize that we're never getting a lot of uncertainties for a long period of time. No, definitely. And I definitely agree with you on the um, agility and flexibility because I think a lot, of, a lot of brands are having to learn to pivot. And without being agile, and fully flexible, it's difficult to do that. So Niall, one of the things that was very exciting in the press yesterday is that you've been nominated by Fast Company as one of the most innovative retailers of the year. Yeah, well, we were not only nominated, but we've won as uh, World Changer of the Year for Fast Company for the consumer products industry. And and the, the reason for their selection is that... Um, uh, the connecting of every consumer product to the, in the world to the web is providing unprecedented transparency, and uh, they felt that that was world-changing. I would tend to agree. So that's, that's why we won the award. Congratulations. That's fantastic. Thank you. And Deirdre, one of the things that's really, really interested me, and you know, I've watched both with pride and um, you know, with humility, is how you took a stand very early on and help to fight the pandemic by keeping frontline workers safe with the making of masks and PPE. I mean, can you tell us what you're doing with the Brooklyn Navy Yard and PPE? I was um, so proud to see you on the news, actually, with, uh, with the mayor talking about all of, the, um, all of the challenges, but yet all of the things that you were able to do really quite quickly due to your situation with manufacturing in China and the crisis that was right on your doorstep with Brooklyn Hospital, et cetera, where, you know, we had a huge, huge um, rise of COVID. Um, Deirdre, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, you know, being a New York City brand, uh, it's our home, it's our city, and, and we wanted to do anything that we could do to help out. So uh, the Navy Yard, who, you know, was used to World War II, and we do feel like it's World War III, got everyone together that was in the yard. And um, if you had a sewing machine, you were asked to help. 
um, the New York City Economic Development Corporation got us all together. We made the patterns for the gowns. Uh, we sourced the fabrics. We laser cut it and give the work out to all the factories within the yard. And, you know, they were able to make a big difference. So, you know, my sewers, you know, people were afraid to come in, but they want to make a difference. So we make sure that they're driven by their families or we go pick them up so that they're safe. Um, you know, everything, we separated the sewing machines and we definitely made sure, you know, I see the Brooklyn Hospital from the front lines. We were delivering masks over there. Um, there's just an incredible amount of, um, you know, pride in, in doing anything you can to help New Yorkers. In reverse now, we're manufacturing masks in our factory in China. And that's been, you know, another, if someone would have told me three months ago, don't worry, you, you'll be manufacturing masks instead, I would be like, why would we want masks? Today, I think it's the new scarf. So we're going to do whatever we can to help out and to be as flexible as possible in our manufacturing. What I think is, is great about that too, is that I think that the consumer is really going to respond to brands with heart. And I think having a heart is as important today as, you know, hard work, honesty, and humility, I think the part of heart is going to become increasingly more important. And, uh, you know, it's very attuned to the consumer mindset. Thank you, Deirdre. Um, Jeffrey, you know, as Deirdre mentioned, there's so much uncertainty right now about the future of retail and the post-crisis shopping environment. You know, what are some of the new retail realities we can expect to see from a consumer perspective? Uh, I love that question. And I just want to say before we go on, Deirdre, wow, it's so impressive what you are doing. And thank you. Thank you for all you're doing for all of us. Maybe that's a, a good segue to this idea of like, where will we be when we come out of this from a retail perspective? And I've been thinking a lot about the fact that, uh, you, you know, we, we came into the COVID crisis and the lockdown, at least using U.S. statistics, at roughly 16% online penetration of total retail activity. And what we're seeing now, as you all know, is that um, not only is e-commerce in a lot of categories beyond those essential items spiking, and of course, the most visible example of that is grocery demand. The data right now is that about a third of the people ordering from either Prime or Instacart for grocery have never ordered groceries online before. Wayfair is reporting that its sales have doubled month on month. Many of the bed-in-the-box bed mattress companies are up 300 400%. So these are now big-ticket durables people are buying online. The broader public, some familiar with e-commerce for low ticket items, but not big ticket items. Some people who never shopped on e-commerce platforms at all. Some who shopped but never bought groceries on those platforms. They're now getting educated to do that. If we came in at 16% online penetration, where do we come out? Most people I talk to believe that we come out at least around 25%. Some people think 30%. So then put that in the context of the re retail apocalypse or the shop copolypse that's been going on for three or four years with store closures, that is going to be an enormous boon for the so-called touchless or online economy. And it's going to be uh, you know, some disruption like we've never seen in the world of traditional brick and mortar retail. Now, I agree. And, I, you know, I've heard numbers of 80-20, somewhere between, you know, 80-20 um, and 75-25, I think is probably right. Because, you know, with most people averaging... 10 weeks of lockdown to 12 weeks of lockdown, you develop habits. And Niall, how are you seeing retailers and brands transition and apply digitization during the pandemic? Can you just talk about some of the global trends that you're seeing as a result of the crisis? We're certainly seeing uh, consumer brands consider 
uh, how they need to provide transparency and communicate the ethic of their of their operation towards consumers as there's a big uplift in in the sense of uh, of, of of who uh, is a reliable brand but 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 also now a tremendous uh, opportunity as well as well as threat as to who has control of that consumer relationship. Um, who, uh, we, we, we talked about a massive shift in e-commerce, so how do brands lean into uh, uh, taking control of that consumer relationship? Uh, if, you, if you've seen uh, your retail, uh, your traditional retail outlets close down, you need to work out how to accelerate your, your DDC uh, capability, yet uh, uh, we've got uh, Amazon or, or, or Walmart disintermediating that relationship uh, in e-commerce terms and, and therefore brands wanting to use other methods like digitized products as a means of, of driving that interaction. And, and, uh, and then uh, there's an unprecedented level of, of collaboration actually taking place across the supply chain. Traditionally, uh, certainly consumer brand producers have, have uh, very carefully uh, protected the, the, the insight that they have within their own supply chain operations. And we're, not, we're now seeing uh, a significant amount of data sharing as uh, everybody realizes that they have to react in, in, uh, in new ways. And so uh, collecting data between suppliers, producers, logistics providers, uh, and, and working out how to share that in pre-competitive fashions. I agree. Definitely creating partnerships, collaborating on community definitely has been a trend. And I think, Deirdre, there's, there's been so many companies pivoting their business due to the pandemic. And in addition to PPE, what are some of the other strategies um, quickly that you're putting in place as you think about reopening and connecting with the customer? Sure. Well, I was able to come to work every day because I live across the street. I've spent a lot of time in the office thinking about how to reorganize the company. And I actually announced it to the team uh, yesterday on a Zoom meeting. 350 of my employees, 50% of which are furloughed, were told when they come back, it's not going to be what we were. So I don't want people to walk in thinking that that it's, it's normal. It's not. A third of our business used to be direct to consumer. Um, it will switch to two thirds. It'll take time, but we have a plan of action in order to make that happen. We want to get closer to our consumer. We want to control our destiny. So while we're down in, and in, in, you know, ours and everyone else's volume. We've, we were hit with a 30 to 40% reduction depending on how people come out of this. I want to come out stronger. Less will be more for us, but definitely, you know, other changes in technology are helping us. We're having a virtual showroom because we don't expect people are coming into market. And, you know, these are all modern ways to change your business model. So we're excited. I can hear the opportunity and the excitement in your voice, Deirdre, which is a a big change to most of the conversations we have. So that's great. And Jeffrey, I mean, you know, lastly, how will the consumer behavior affect the way brands and retailers operate moving forward? And I know we've had, you know, we've had a good sort of um, insight into that with Deirdre, but you know, how do you see consumer behavior affected? Thanks, Mary Gay. You know, I, I think that uh, consumers are going to uh, have to adjust their expectations of uh, around the brands that they love. I mean, I think about one of the crises uh, that is likely in the next six to 12 months as we get back to normal is that that whole raft of very inspiring so-called DNVBs, the digitally native vertical brands, the attackers who've come in with innovative niche products and developed very strong, emotionally compelling relationships with consumers. They They've done that because they've had the luxury to focus 
completely on the relationship, the interaction with the consumer. I mean, a cynic from the ad tech world would call most of them, starting with Dollar Shave Club, lead gen operations, and they then reverse engineer their sources of supply. The DMVBs, in order to keep faith with consumers and for consumers to keep maintaining a meaningful relationship with them, they're going to have to become supply chain specialists in some regard. They're going to have to do something to hedge the risk of not having the the ownership or control that they have not needed in the past, they're going to need now. And the other thing that I think we're going to see with consumers is, of course, uh, people are going to be skittish about coming into environments where lots of other people are around. So I think this issue that we have been rethinking what we do with physical stores, obviously for a time of crisis over the last several years, as we talked about, but now we're going to have to rethink it again which is not only how do you reinvent what you do in an omni-channel system with your brick and mortar platforms, your properties, your stores, but actually how do you create a perception of safety within those stores while maintaining something like buzz or excitement that compels people to be there? I think that's going to be a big challenge going forward, and we're going to have to overcome those new phobias on the part of consumers. That's a great point. And I think, you know, to tie in to our three speakers today, I mean, I think definitely agree with um, Niall on collaboration, partnership, community, and transparency as major, major trends coming out of COVID. Definitely uh, agree as well with Deirdre on the need for agility, flexibility, and being able to pivot your business and to pivot your business digitally. It's essential in, in, in today's world. Listening to Jeffrey as well, I think what's very important is this technology with humanity and how we navigate the physical environments and the digital environments and this new digital um, economy and digital environment that we're all navigating. And I think one of the things that definitely I've seen with all of the brands and all of the strategic partners that, that I've been working with is this very, very important rise of sustainability rise of the mindful consumer and mindful consumption. And I think before we, before COVID, we had conspicuous consumption to an element, but we had moved away. And what I see today is a consumer that's much more thoughtful, that cares, is very focused to Jeffrey's point on health and safety and security and trust. And that's why all of the brands are going to need to look at how they nurture the consumer and, you know, digital marketing has got to be focused on empathy, on inclusivity, but also, you know, making the consumer feel safe. And I think one of our biggest challenges as we go back, which I think you've all alluded to in different ways, is safety first. People first, safety first. It used to be product first. It's most definitely transitioning post-COVID to people first. And I think that's an important thing. So we're finishing with technology and humanity. This was a special edition of Retails from the Frontline. I'd like to thank our guests, Niall Murphy, Deirdre Quinn, and Jeffrey. I wish you all well. Stay healthy, stay safe. Thank you, everybody, for coming on today. Thank you. Thank you.